0: I am speaking with David Brooks. David is one of the nation's leading writers and commentators. He's an op-ed columnist for the New York Times, and he appears regularly on PBS's NewsHour and Meet the Press. And he's the best-selling author of several books, The Social Animal, Bobo's in Paradise, and most recently, and the book under discussion, The Road to Character. Uh, and in this episode, we talk about that book, The Road to Character, and it was a very interesting book where David goes into the difference between self-gratification and self-overcoming on some basic level. So we talk about things like sin and self-esteem versus self-overcoming and the significance of keeping promises and the ethics of honesty and related matters. Inevitably, we get to Trump There was no way I could let David Brooks escape without telling me something about his view of the current political landscape, but that does not dominate the podcast, for those of you who are sick to death of the topic. Our time was somewhat short. It's interesting that an hour on this podcast feels quite short, but David had another interview to get to, so enjoy it while it lasts. And now I give you David Brooks. I am here with David Brooks. David, thanks for coming on the podcast.
1: It's a great pleasure.
0: So we, we've only met once. I, I'm trying to rack my brains to uh, find another time, but we we met at a, a meeting organized by the great John Brockman at one point. Does that square with your memory as well?
1: I do remember that. He, John Brockman is the zealot of the modern American culture, global culture. He shows up everywhere.
0: <laughs> Many people don't know this, but he he controls much of our intellectual life. So I want to talk to you about two main things. I want to talk to you about your book The Road to Character which I loved. And then I think we will inevitably talk a little about a very different road, the road that one man took to the White House. I know my audience is sick to death of Trump as I am. I think that there's a god, he probably is sick of Trump too at this point. But I can't have you on this podcast without getting your take on what's going on in Washington. So I think we will arrive there, but we will first go toward topics that I know are dear to your heart and mine, which is really the, the, the nature of our moral lives or lack thereof. So let, let's start with how you came to, to write this book and what you mean by character, because character is a, like many of the words you use in this book, is not a, a word that tends to roll off the tongue without any self-consciousness at this point. How did you come to this, and, and what is character, in your view?
1: Yeah, it's not a great word. It's not a word I like, uh, and I'm not even sure how often it's in the book. <laughs> but when I came to uh, have a title uh, that could, in one word, or at least in a couple words, summarize sort of moral development, uh, that was seemed to be the word that at least people sort of got the gist of what you were talking about, uh, whereas moral development itself, as a phrase, sounds clunky. I started to write a book about humility. And at first, it was just going to be about epistemological humility, really building off work that uh, Danny Kahneman and a lot of other people have done about shortcomings of our own thinking processes. But then as I got into it, I guess my my tableau expanded. And I started thinking about uh, moral humility and all different kinds of humility. Uh, And basically, I mean, when you're sort of doing what I do, you sort of work out your own crap in public. And so I achieved way more career success than I ever thought I would, but I never had and still don't have the sort of uh, joyous demeanor and radiating goodness that I see in other people. And so I just sort of wanted to figure out how do they get that? And so the book, I really took a bunch of characters more or less randomly selected who were pathetic at age 20 and kind of amazing at age 70. And I just wanted to know how do they grow into much better people, which they all did.
0: Yeah, the story is really told through these these different characters you profile and people like Dorothy Day and Montaigne and Dr. Johnson. And I guess as time is short, I don't want to go into many of them, but one jumped out at me, the profile of George Marshall, the general who is not as famous as he should be, perhaps, though the Marshall Plan is named after him. In writing about character and writing about virtues that are, again, that we, we don't really have the moral language anymore to talk about without uh, really straining, and, and we'll get into the significance of words like sin and, and wisdom and other, other words that, that, that people don't use so readily anymore. But in the character of Marshall, I was struck by the fact that so much of what you describe about him is clearly noble and deserving of of really nothing but praise. I mean, his level of self-sacrifice and self-abnegation and his willingness seemingly at every turn to put country before self, to put the, the, the needs of, in this case, the President of the United States before his own career goals. But it was hard to actually envy him. If I could teach my children to be good, I'm not sure... I would give them that particular piece of software he was running. So why don't you just summarize briefly the story you tell about Marshall and in particular about the way in which he didn't make the moves when his career was really reaching its its apogee to become the far more famous and influential general that he might have been.
1: Yeah, he grew up in Pennsylvania and he was a very shy boy and a very poor student. And his older brother went to um, VMI, Virginia Military Institute, and Marshall wanted to go too. And his older brother said, you know, George is kind of pathetic. Let's let's not let him go there because he'll ruin the family name. And so he was not an impressive young man, but he ended up going to VMI and he ended up uh, really loving military life and military life really was the making of him. He joined the institution, it gave him discipline. He it turned out he, he had a habit of command. He was never a great student, but he had a habit of leadership. People wanted to follow him, and he had a, a spirit of rectitude. And so he rose through the Army, sometimes seeming on the outside extremely conservative and staid, even as he was revolutionizing a lot of things within the Army about fighting with tanks and how they did train future soldiers. So he was a bit of a, a quiet uh, rebel within the Army. And then my favorite Marshall story happens. He's already head of the Army. In 1943, and he really wants to run Operation Overlord, which is the D Day invasion. And uh, Churchill and Stalin had both told him he was going to get the job, and Harry Hopkins had told him the same. Uh, but he had a code that he would never campaign for himself because he feared his own ambition. And when Roosevelt called him into the Oval Office, he, Roosevelt said, Would you like to run Operation Overlord? And instead of just saying yes, Marshall said, My own personal ambitions should have no bearing on your decision, do what's best for you. And Roosevelt asked him four times, and four times Marshall said, it's not about me, it's about you. And Roosevelt took the chance to give the job to Eisenhower, and Marshall was crushed. And it was the one day he went home early in the whole course of the war. And so it hurt him, and he would have been a much more famous person if he'd run the D-Day invasion, but he wouldn't be Marshall. And he was someone who's not only admired by history, but he's admired by those around him, which isn't always the case. The people who knew him best really admired him the most. But I sort of get the chilliness about him. He had a quality that, you know, we associate with Greek and Roman times uh, of magnanimity, uh, which Pericles had, and I think George Washington had. And it's a great man doing great service to his country, but at the same time, he's detached, and he's emotionally cold. Uh, and so he he, allow, he gives himself a certain grandeur, but he loses familiarity and friendliness. Marshall could be very friendly and very intimate, but only in the tightest circle of trusted friends. With everyone else, he was a bit standoffish. Uh, and so during the war, he wouldn't call Eisenhower Ike the way everyone else did because it was too familiar. He was aloof. Uh, and I do think that's, that does make him a little hard to hard to love.
0: Yeah, it's also, it's not so much hard to love, that's probably another point, but I noticed that many of these things that we immediately recognize as virtues, in this case, his willingness to be self-effacing, even when he, in some basic sense, deserves all the praise that is coming his way and the advancement that is is being offered, certain virtues are in tension with other virtues. And it's hard to actually want to emulate him in that moment, given that you could also tell a probably an equally ennobling story about doing what is appropriate to actualize your gifts in the service of of others. His rectitude was in tension with just a, kind of an honest acknowledgement of perhaps who's the best man for the job. And ma- many of our moral considerations seem to have this structure where it's not really a matter of good versus evil or sin versus virtue, but it's, it's sometimes a matter of prioritizing various values that are all values that we that we actually hold and can endorse, but there is a zero sum conflict between some of them some of the time. Do you feel that that's the way the landscape looks to you, or do you see it mostly a matter of, of always seeing clearly what is what is right versus wrong?
1: Yeah, I, I'm I'm on your side. I, I think the values are incommensurate as Isaiah Berlin would say, that things don't fit together neatly. Uh, and sometimes things are in tension and they create paradoxes. Um, and so a lot of the characters I write about in the book, more so if I had to do the book over, I wouldn't include so much of this. They had a virtue of reticence uh, and um, Marshall had that, uh, Francis Perkins, another person from that, car- that era had that, but it also gave them uh, the vice of coldness or it uh, the, the virtue of reticence um, took away from the virtue of friendliness. And so one of the features in the book that um and that's informed my thinking a lot is Augustine's th- ladder of loves theory. Uh, he says we all love a lot of things, um but we know instinctively that some loves are higher than others. And that you should love honesty more than you love money, for example. You shouldn't lie in order to get money or if you if a friend tells you a, a secret and then you blab it at a dinner party, Uh, you're putting your love of um, popularity above your love of friendship. And we all know that's wrong. And those are cases where we love two different things, and it's pretty obvious which one's higher. But there are other times where it's not obvious and that the two different loves are in tension. And sometimes you have to pick one, or sometimes your personality more or less inclines you in one direction or another.
0: Yeah, well, in your discussion of this, you oppose various things. You talk about the, the resume virtues versus the eulogy virtues. You talk about moral realism versus moral romanticism, and there, there are many more. So maybe we can track through some of these because it's a very useful structure. What are the resume virtues and the eulogy virtues?
1: Yeah, well, I should say I've, one of my mental weaknesses is a, I have a weakness for dualisms, and I, I, see, I see them everywhere, and I'm persuaded by all of them.
0: In this case, it's a strength, but I, I take your point.
1: Um, and so the, the eulogy virtues and the resume virtues are things I more or less took from a guy named Joseph Soloveitchik, who was a rabbi in the mid-20th century. And he, uh, he said we have two sides of our nature, uh, one side, which is about conquering the world and being majestic in it. And those are the resume virtues, the things that make us good at our job, whether it's a good teacher or a good nurse or doctor or whatever. And then the eulogy virtues are the internal side of ourselves, the, the things they say about us after we're dead whether it's um, being courageous or honest or capable of great love. And my my argument in the book is that we live in a culture that knows the eulogy virtues are more important. We'd all rather be remembered for our character traits rather than our career. But we live in a culture that emphasizes the form, the career parts, not the latter. And we're just a lot more articulate about how to build a good career than how to build a good uh, person. And our universities in particular are much more confident in talking about professional rise than a moral or spiritual rise for a lot of different reasons. One of them, uh, my colleague at Yale, Tony Cronman, who's at the law school, says specialization causes us to look at the narrow focus of different subjects, but never step back and look at the whole person. And so his argument is that specialization causes us to abstract from the whole quality of, of our conduct and makes us focus on you know, how we're doing as potential lawyers or academics or whatever.
0: Yeah, well, there's there's another opposition that is relevant to what you just said. You talk at one point about talent versus character. To view a person as a collection of talents that need to be maximized, there's a kind of utilitarian and, and transactional way we think about ourselves and our interface with the world. And it's not the same thing as developing a truly moral character and seeing that as a, an ongoing struggle against limitations that are not a matter of your jumping through the kinds of hoops that your talents or your specialization would dictate.
1: And my, my shorthand way to say that was is that if you're going to pick out a career, then go with your strengths, go with the things that t- you're naturally talented at or, or want to be talented at. But if you're thinking about your internal growth, pay a lot of attention to your weaknesses. And one of the things that pretty much all the characters in the book do is they identified what was their core sin, their core problem. For Marshall, it was his ambition. For Eisenhower, another character in the book, it was his anger, he had a terrible temper. Uh, for others, uh, Dorothy Day, she was sort of over emotional and fragmented. Uh, and, and they waged a daily drama, uh, drama against their weakness. And so I would say if you want to be a good person and if you don't work on your weaknesses, you'll end up like Richard Nixon uh, being swallowed up by them.
0: I think there was someone in the book, it might have been Dorothy Day, who was urged to major in an academic subject that was her weakness just to overcome that, to not take your career advice here and focus on your actual talents. Was that Dorothy Day or was that someone else in the book?
1: That was Frances Perkins. She was at Mount Holyoke. And Mount Holyoke, then, as now, is quite a remarkable place. And they really did think we're not, we're training people to uh, be really good people. Uh, we're not worrying about their careers. And it was a women's college, so there was some sexism in that. But they said, listen, if you can major in the field you're weakest in, that will build your character and you'll be able to, you'll be able to conquer anything. And to that school's credit, they sent out um, young women. Uh, Perkins was class of 1903. They sent them out to Pakistan, across Africa, across Asia, on these service trips, and they would spend years abroad. And somebody did a a, a census of all the missionaries abroad, I think, in around 1920, and some ridiculous percentage, like 20% of them, were Mount Holyoke grads. So they were armed with a sense of mission and a sense of toughness uh, on how to conquer life's challenges. It was quite a remarkable place.
0: So... You think we lose something important when we lose concepts like sin and evil and virtue and wisdom and humility, that we, we lose a moral language that not only affects how we talk about these things, it actually affects whether or not we recognize a kind of inner landscape and, and lead a kind of examined life that really becomes impossible unless you have the concepts, unless you have the, the landmarks you can even acknowledge exist and and to shoot for. Some of these words I find myself using and and I can do so without any kind of self-consciousness, but sin isn't one of them because of its association with Christianity in particular and because of some of the, the liabilities of the way in which it's interpreted. This is something you point out in the book. Sin can be and has been so often invoked against genuinely healthy pleasures. I mean, it really is, in, is set in opposition to what most of us would consider a healthy sex life, for instance. How do you think about sin?
1: Yeah, I, I do think we need to recover a lot of these words uh, because it, it is the vocabulary of the, the internal landscape. And it, we happen to have a culture, say, in Western civilization that for, um, you know, 2,000 years has been Christian or Judeo-Christian. And so a lot of the best thinking about um, uh, these concepts comes from people who come from that tradition and whether we're believers or not now, I think a lot of their thinking is still useful and still helpful uh, in thinking about how to good li- have a good life. Now, the word sin was, as you say, ruined by people who used it to punish sex or used it to crack down on being a kid <laughs> a lot of the time. But I think it's useful because it points to the fact that there's sometimes just screw-ups in our nature, that there are bugs in the machine, uh, and that some of them are characteristics of just the way we're wired, and that we should be aware of them. Uh, I think you know we all have a tendency to be selfish and to see the world from our own vantage point. Uh, David Foster Wallace in that famous Kenyan address said, we don't even think about it, but we see the world as before us, behind us, beside us, but it's all revolving around us. And I do think that's just screw up in our nature uh that we're too self-oriented and i don't i think it's possible to have a concept of sin that doesn't rely on you know the original sin and and even something explicitly religious uh the what i talked about earlier about having your loves out of order um i think that's a good way to describe how sin happens that sometimes we just have a tendency to get our loves out of order and we go for some short-term pleasure like popularity over a long-term uh, virtue, like uh, being faithful to our friends. And I think it's, it's useful to revive that word just to, uh, to remind ourselves how sort of broken we are, uh, even while we're splendidly endowed in other ways. Another word I think is worth reviving, which has explicitly religious connotations, is the word grace. Um, sometimes, um, and the way I would say it in non-religious terms is sometimes you get sick or you have a trauma and people you really are close to somehow disappear they don't show up for you but then there are other people you barely know and they completely show up for you and they are very great friends to you at that moment and that's unmerited love that's undeserved and i think it's as you know as it's important to recognize that sometimes we have these flaws in our nature it's also important to recognize that as people and as as a as a race or as a humanity uh Sometimes we just get unmerited benefits that we don't deserve, and sometimes the universe is, is much kinder to us than we merit, and that's grace. And so I think all these qualities are useful for thinking about our place in the world and our spiritual development.
0: How do you think about the self as the, the center of this project? I mean, one way to talk about the road to character is in an opposition between self-esteem, at one point you flagged that in the book, and self-overcoming, talk about your view of the self, the, the thread upon which all of these various questions and considerations are strung.
1: Well, I do think, like I said, we're splendidly endowed but also deeply flawed, and so I, do, I, I sort of wrote the book because you know we've had 30 or 40 years where we've been given the self-esteem movement, uh, and in big ways and small, I just read in the newspaper yesterday that nearly half of all high school students graduate with an A average or an A minus average. So we're pretty good at telling each other how great we are. But I think this has robbed us of a virtue that maybe existed a little more in times past than now, which is the virtue of humility. And I define humility, it's not my definition, but the one I like best is radical honesty from a position of other centeredness the ability to see yourself with complete honesty from sort of a detached position to see where you're strong and see where you're weak. And so to me, humility is clarity of vision about yourself, whereas pride is warped vision about yourself. Uh, And the characters in the book, in part of their ability to struggle against their own weakness was to see their own weaknesses very clearly. Uh, And I do think that was a, a trait that was maybe a little more common say, in the 1940s uh, than today.
0: Well, another thing that one thinks about in this vein is parenting and the kinds of values and and the mode of of self-understanding we would want to impart to our children. And, And I'm struck by how different it seems the values here begin to flip, because obviously we have been convinced, most of us certainly have been convinced, that One thing you want to impart to your children is a healthy sense of self esteem and even in many cases pride over their accomplishments and a a, a very clear attention to their weaknesses uh, is not something that gets emphasized. And one could argue it probably shouldn't be emphasized until a certain point. I mean, until a certain point closer to adulthood. How do you think about the project? of being a parent in light of this conversation we're having about one's own road to character.
1: Yeah, this is actually uh, something I I noticed after the book came out, which I I didn't really notice while writing it, that all the characters I chose, pretty much all of them, I think, had really amazing mothers uh, and who just poured love, a lot of love into their kids. Their fathers tended to be a little cold. And I think that was true because a lot of the characters were in the grew up in the early 20th century, I think there was just a lot of coldness between fathers and kids. And so, and I've read about this subsequently that a lot of people, and I'm not recommending this, I'm just making an observation. A lot of people who grow up to be phenomenally successful have one parent who gives them unconditional love, often the mother, and then another parent who gives them, is cold and gives them very conditional love. So they've got strength, but they've also got insecurity, which they struggle very hard all their lives to overcome. And I wouldn't want to raise my own kids that way. I think both parents should be giving unconditional love, but that—that that is something that all the these uh, people had. I do think if I had to write the book over, I, you know, the main story that I tell in the book is is very individualistic. It's Dwight Eisenhower struggling against his weakness. It's Dorothy Day struggling against her weakness. And I think the book, in retrospect, is a little too is too individualistic. I see the self as too self-enclosed. And if I had to do it over again, I think I would um, emphasize first the love that was poured into them, that really built a strong sense of themselves, and then the way they were able to die to self after that was achieved and pour a strong sense of love into other people. And so I'd, I'd probably write it a more communitarian book if I had to do it over again.
0: Well, it's a point you make. At various points in the book, where you say that this can't be done alone, right? That we rely on other people, both in terms of their guidance, but just almost the geometry of the situation. So many of our flaws and our strengths, uh, you know, our, our sinning is exposed in relationship. It's not something that it's done in the privacy of our own minds merely. It's because we are entangled with others. I mean, if you are going to be dishonest. Uh, you know, I suppose you can be dishonest with yourself, but the sin of lying is really something that only comes out in relationship to others. And so it is with the the strength of humility or anything else. It is a point you make, but it's true that these stories are the stories of a fairly solitary effort to be better than one was yesterday.
1: Yeah, no, I think the the book I'm trying to write now is about promising (laughs) and about all the promises we make. And I, I I know I guess I I think that self conflict and the self improvement is part of character building or part of what it means to be an adult, but uh, being faithful to one's promises uh, may be a more important part. And who what you choose to promise faithfulness to, and then how you execute on that those promises that strikes me as a little more central. And that's essentially a social exercise.
0: Yeah, it's it's also confounded by the structure of the self, or as, and it's a lack of coherence. Because when you're making a promise today, you are making a promise that your future self has to keep. And given that the self doesn't have this, this unchanging integrity, given that it's a process, it's a, it's a verb more than it is a noun, you then arrive at that point in the future and feel hemmed in by this promise that your past self made. You have to really be clear about the value of keeping a promise in that case. you can't merely be motivated by your own desires at that point, assuming it's something that you no longer want to do.
1: Right, and then that's even true in in the act of making a promise. I read a book, I'm now forgetting the author, I'm afraid, but and she described she was a philosopher, and she described the vampire problem. Suppose somebody came up to you and said, "I can make I can turn you into a vampire. you can fly around at night and you can live forever. you'll have all these magical powers." Would you like to do it? But once you turn into a vampire, you can't turn back. And and how would you know? Because you, as your human self, doesn't know what it feels like to be a vampire self. And her point was, we make a lot of decisions where the act of making the decision changes who we are. And you can't go back. And so the act of having children, uh, getting married, going to med school, joining the Marine Corps, all these things changes the self. And. So when you're making that decision, you have no data about who your future self is going to be and what it's going to like. And so it makes those big decisions in life very hard to do.
0: Yeah, well, I spent a lot of time thinking about and, and writing about and talking about the self as an illusion. But it, it, it takes a few minutes to fully describe what I mean by that. But it, you know, it's, it's very, it's in harmony with, with the, the Buddhist view of these things. Uh, which is that the self is not, the self, as most people take it to be, this unchanging center of, I believe my friend Dan Dennett coined the phrase, the center of narrative gravity. This idea that there's a core to us, the thinker of our thoughts, the, the center of our experience, that is unchanging, that is carried through from one moment to the next, and is perpetually accountable for everything we think and do, that we are the authors of our thoughts and actions and intentions that upon analysis, whether it's subjectively through meditation or philosophically just by the, just thinking about it or even neurologically you know, looking, looking for such a thing in the brain, that breaks down. That, that I think, is an untenable idea. And what, it, what replaces it is a kind of flux, a kind of just various states of self where you begin to notice that you can be remarkably different in different situations and with different people. Certain people can call out in you very different sides of yourself, which you are are helpless to reproduce in other relationships. And I think most of us find this. I mean you'll be very funny with one person and you can't possibly find anything even mildly amusing with another. And the fault is not merely with you, it's with the the dynamic and and so it is with every other side of yourself you you experience and so the, it is this kind of flow which to map that on to to your project of of building character and becoming better than we were yesterday it is a a flow that has to be regulated by a value system by concepts like the ladder of loves that you you invoked which is despite the the ever changing psychological reality, where you are buffeted by thoughts and whims and desires continually, you still have to have some sense of a map that articulates a a direction worth going. And this is, I mean, this is what moral language and concepts are are for.
1: It's something I struggle with. Um, I'm friends with a guy named Walter Michel, a a psychologist who's most famous for the marshmallow experiment. But the other side of his life, is uh, he did a series of experiments with children about who was honest, who was an honest kid. And it turned out that people who were extremely honest at school were extremely dishonest at camp. Uh, And it (laughs) it depended totally on where they were, how people described them. And I think he certainly has a point. On the other hand, I do think there's some legitimacy to the big five personality traits, which do have some constancy across time and maybe even across life. But I also think, and I'm curious if you agree that And maybe this is what you're getting at: is that over time we can uh, build constancy, not in a straight line, but by tying ourselves down to certain things uh, and by committing to certain either professions or environments or people, uh, and that we do come to a point, uh, or at least come into a unity or closer to a unity than we were maybe when we were adolescents.
0: Yeah, no, I I I think you can change your Self or the, the the direction that your mind and life tend radically, and I, th- I think, uh, I, and I, one aspect of this is the humility engendered by looking closely at what you're calling yourself and seeing that you didn't make yourself right. So that your 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 strengths are are a gift, right? You're not you you can't really claim that you are the author of of anything good, really, that you find in yourself, and that's not. That's not disemp. I mean, many people hear that as as something somehow disempowering. It's not. It's I mean I, I view it as freeing. But one thing that collapses there is pride of certainly pride of the the pathological sort. I mean you, you you can't take credit for your intelligence or your capacity for effort or anything else that you notice that's good in yourself. But on the other side, you might fear that it erodes a capacity for shame, but not Necessarily. I mean, it's like you, you, you're not really to blame for the bad things you, you find in yourself, but you can still be committed to correcting them because you, you still have a preference for the kind of life you live. I mean, you just have to be, you have to understand what you, to invoke a word you use at various points in the book. I mean, wisdom is, for me, a matter of charting a course in this world that, that escapes unnecessary suffering. And that, that heuristic, it sounds kind of superficial, stated that way, but it runs very, very deep, which is if you're living a life that is not wise, that is morally synonymous with you know, needless conflict with the people around you. Whatever your intention to form loving relationships, it's continually confounded by your misbehavior and your following you know short-term desires and overlooking long ones it's synonymous with not having the career you actually want because you've you've put needless obstacles in your way all of these things whether or not you created the tools you find in yourself to navigate this terrain you still want to navigate it and you and and, and all you can do is use the tools you find in yourself as intelligently as possible in each moment so as to move in the right direction. And, and I mean, to your question about whether structure or tying yourself down to something works or matters, I, I think it absolutely does. I mean, so, so one thing I've often recommended is the ethic of just, of just not lying, really, ever. Putting dishonesty on the continuum of violence where you would be dishonest in a true Moment of self defense, right? You know, the, the Nazis come to the door and, and ask whether you've got Anne Frank in the attic or some analogous situation. But to generally just be committed to not lying, I think that's an immensely clarifying thing to do, which, which is at, at odds with much of human nature, as you know. And so you, you're, your inclination to lie, your inclination to, to shade the truth, is constantly exposed once you have made that vow essentially. That's one one example of a kind of discipline that I think can corral this what's otherwise a, this shapeless mass of, you know, sometimes I lie, sometimes I don't, you know, who knows what I'm going to say next, which is the way most people, in my experience, relate to the question of whether or not to be honest or dishonest.
1: And I, I guess I would say uh, another way of saying what you're saying, I, I think you agree, is that if we have divided selves, then the, the discipline of not lying is one part of the self um, trying to slowly engrave habits in maybe the unconscious part of the self or the intuitive part of the self. And I think that's what character actually means in the original form. It's, it means to engrave. Uh, and so it's a gradual process of carving dispositions into some deeper part of yourself.
0: Yeah, no, I think that is a good way to put it because it, it it does so much of of learning anything. Learning to swing a tennis racket has this structure too where you are at first you don't know how to do it. You have a conscious goal and you're given a conscious recipe and actually learning to do it is a matter of pushing that recipe back into parts of the brain that you are not conscious of. With a motor task, it's a procedural memory. And once it becomes that, then you're actually, you don't even know how you swing a tennis racket or a golf club or anything else at that point. And to think too much about it is to degrade your performance. And I think much of our moral life also has that structure, at least potentially, where you begin to learn that being a certain way and being virtuous again, to use a strangely loaded term, actually feels better than tempting moments of non-virtue. And you you begin to feel the emotional cost of giving in to the thing that you otherwise had to convince yourself was a good idea, like telling the truth even when it's uncomfortable. You become sensitive to the, the way in which when you're tempted to lie to someone, that is synonymous with actually having fallen out of Relationship with that person, where you're, you're no longer on the same team. Whatever seemed to be true a moment ago, now your own desire to avoid awkwardness, say, is in contest with your actual connection to this other person and their goals and, their, and what they feel they need to know about the world. But again, I, I do think it does get, to use your terminology, engraved on this unconscious part of ourselves where we then just it becomes a, our default procedure.
1: Let me uh, bring it back, maybe the sin. Um, well, you know, you you said that a sign of unwisdom is, is the creation of needless conflict uh, and needless suffering. Um, now, Martin Luther King um, was someone who I think we would probably consider wise, but he certainly created a lot of conflict. Uh, uh, and he did it, I think, because he had this awareness that there was this sin of racism and segregation. And so they, it was a high, he was appealing to something a lot higher uh, and was willing to cause a lot of conflict along the way because there was a higher, tr- higher truth he was seeking that was beyond just who's suffering, who's unhappy, who's, uh, frankly, who's suffering uh, in this. Would you agree that um, the, that appeal to some higher standard sometimes necessitates suffering? Because I certainly speak as someone who avoids conflict whenever possible, and that's one of my weaknesses.
0: I would certainly agree with that, that there are, and again, this this is back to this issue of competing virtues, where sometimes your desire to avoid suffering, yours or others, is in competition with some higher good. I mean, you know, if your child needs a medical procedure that she doesn't want and is scared to get, but she needs it, well, then you just have to figure out how to impart a different lesson here, which is as unpleasant as this is, we recover from these experiences. There's this question of, you know, when you are trying to improve a society or trying to get anything done that is valuable on at some kind of scale, well, then other things can't get done or other things can't get funded or other or sensitivities that people want respected can't be respected because they are ill-considered, say. You know, I spend a lot of time criticizing religion, as I, as I think you know, and this upsets a lot of people, but I, I do it because I think you know, religion has more than its fair share of bad ideas that, that need to be criticized, and that it would be good for us to have a more searching conversation about the contest between reason and faith, for instance, or the validity of revelation, the idea that any book was written by an omniscient deity. So you know, yeah, that pisses people off to to hear those things talked about in less than respectful terms. But I mean, I I, I only do that because I think there is a, a larger good to come of it.
1: You know, in the in the book, my book about half the people are religious and half are not. Uh, and I I would say one of the things I notice among the religious characters and Augustine is the prime one, but Dorothy Day might be the better example. Is they're more motivated to be good and sometimes. Doing the hard thing or the right thing is, it's not a question of knowing uh, what's right, uh, but possessing the proper motivation to actually go ahead and do it. And I would say, you know, all the people I write about are, are strongly motivated to try to be the best person they could be. That's why I wrote about them. They're not average. But I would say the religious people, there's a stronger uh, source of motivation.
0: Yeah. Well, I think we'll have to leave that aside, I think there's a, we, you and I could have a, a long conversation about religion and its significance and its necessity in certain cases or not, but I just can't let you go without getting your view of the current political situation. And I know your time is short, so I want to segue. I mean, the, the bridge between what we were talking about and Trump is fairly direct. I mean, you know, in my view, Trump is the walking annihilation of more or less everything we've been talking about and I, I don't actually think that puts it too strongly i i think he i mean this is something I, i've talked about a lot on the podcast but it's just he strikes me as the as a distillation of everything that is wrong with the american character this could be in large measure a caricature but he has brought the caricature. To life, it's a, if you take our materialism and our ignorance about the rest of the world, and our satisfaction in our ignorance, our overconfidence, our pretension to greatness, even when we're actually being merely petty, our vanity, our sexism, boorishness, narcissism—I mean, all of these—these these are the antithesis of the kind of project you're articulating in your book. A kind of childishness that doesn't have the virtues of childhood. I mean, it is a kind of malignant childhood that just is just all boastfulness and me 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 without any of the curiosity or sympathy that you meet in actual children. He is the living embodiment of a kind of American grotesque. And again, this I'm a little self-conscious about this calumny against, you know, America or the the ugly American, but it's almost like he is a golem that has been conjured by the worst things that have ever been said about us as a country. I mean, it's, it's like, you know, if he can't grope it or put gold letters on it, he, it doesn't exist. And so I just want to, in, in these last 10 minutes, it's got to be very interesting to be David Brooks thinking about politics at this moment, or, or very painful. What do you make of the current situation with Trump?
1: Well, it's humbling because I wrote this book on humility. And it came out and then the election happened and you like to hope to think your book will have some influence <laughs> and we the least humble even right. being on the face of the earth. Uh, and I do, uh, I more or less agree with everything you said about Trump and how he, he's a negation of what we've been talking about. But, you know, one of the things I found while writing the book was the extreme power of celebrity culture. And uh, I talk about these UCLA studies they do of, of college freshmen. They ask, what would you like in life? And it used to be fame was the thing of the sixteen characters that was at the bottom. People didn't want to be famous now it's number two or three. There's just just a great desire to be famous and the celebrification and here is a a man who's for whom celebrity and celebrification and self promotion are sort of the sum and substance of his character and i I guess what surprised me over the course of this last eighteen months is the um the moral flaws that, that don't uh, ring any bells, that don't set off any alarms in a lot of people. So I do think he is perhaps the endpoint of a certain narcissistic tendency that a lot of people have been writing about for 20 or 30 years. One of the questions to me is whether we snap back from it or whether this is the new standard that, to which we all conduct our lives and politics on from here on out.
0: I remember you writing in a fairly recent op-ed, maybe a month old now. And as you know, the news cycle just cleans the slate more or less every 24 hours now. So I'm wondering if this still holds. But I remember you saying that you were worried that we were getting ahead of ourselves on the Russia investigation and that it seemed less substantial than the Whitewater scandal when you were attending to it back when you, you wrote for the, I think it was the Wall Street Journal. Does that still seem true to you? Has anything changed since Don Jr.'s emails came out?
1: Yeah, that seems less true. What I had said was that based on what we knew at that point, there wasn't any evidence of collusion. Now, obviously, we know the Don Jr. meetings happened. And I think I'm more alert um, to the possibility the way uh, Russian oligarchs may have invested in Trump properties and funded his em- empire in ways we don't know. And so I that. I gave myself the out in that column um, that, uh, you know, if we discover something that there was collusion, then there's collusion. But so far, we haven't found a lot of collusion. Uh, But as of now, we found a little more. I I still don't think it's the kind of scandal that's going to bring him down. I could be wrong. There could be another series of revelations. And my colleague Ross Douthat said of Trump, um, he lets you down every time you try to give him the benefit of the doubt. Uh, and that's certainly the case. So I shouldn't warn, but somehow I, my instinct is that somehow he's the thing that uh, is most destructive about him is not this scandal. It's the inattention to policy. It's the the lowering the standards of the way government works, the way society works. And I, I guess I was pushing in that column against the Watergateization of pol- of our politics that we would imagine that there's some scandal who's going to remove the person we don't like from office. And that's been a sort of a destructive tendency in both parties over the last 25 years.
0: Yeah, I must say that I've been rather eager for his impeachment, but I do share David Frum's impression here, which is that the worst things about him are all right on the surface. It's not, And it's not, I mean, to focus narrowly on collusion is to miss the fact that we have known all this time what's wrong with him, and 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 you just articulated some of it. But I mean, to the fact that we have a president who has nothing but good things to say about Vladimir Putin, that's the problem, right? And that's not impeachable necessarily. I mean, I guess there may be something that could make that impeachable. But the people who are who are hoping to see him removed are in danger of focusing on something which, in the in the end, may not be provable, but is. Among the least significant of his many visible flaws.
1: Yeah, and you know, and just um, to have some humility, at least on my part, I, I always think it's important to separate him from the people who supported him. Not all of them, but a lot of the people who supported him. I certainly have spoken to dozens of Trump voters who have a pretty realistic view of his character. Uh, I I think they underestimate the damage that someone with bad character can do, but. Their view was he's a jerk, he's a narcissistic, he's a blowhard, he's probably a misogynist, but he's my shot at change and I need some change. And so I, my, my one formula is that uh, Trump is the wrong answer to the right question, and that people were willing to tolerate a guy like that because things were going pretty badly in their lives.
0: You so do have to recall that the choice was between him and one other person, Hillary Clinton, and there were many reasons not to like her that many people found. But it is very hard for me, given the kinds of concerns we we have just expressed in this conversation, it's very hard for me to understand how people don't see the, the, the ethical and political significance of the endless line, for instance, you know, and, and the degradation of our discourse. I mean, just to have it, to have a president who, you know, hate tweets, journalists and beauty pageant contestants. And I mean, it's just it's there's there's something so unseemly about his presidency that I I just don't see how establishment Republicans, you know, the Paul Ryans of the world, don't struggle to put some daylight between themselves and this phenomenon on on moral terms.
1: Well, I obviously wish they would. And, you know, I, I go I know a lot of people who are the sort of people who work in Republican administrations. And I've a number have come to me and said, well, I've gotten this offer to go work in the Trump administration, and should I do it? And in the beginning, especially, I thought, well, we need some sensible people in there to sort of restrain this guy and, and keep it uh, sort of just some normal human beings to try to keep the government from completely falling apart. But then I noticed the people I really cared about, I would advise them not to go in because I you're inevitably going to be soiled by defending this and by sort of defending his dishonesty and now i'm almost wishing nobody would go in uh just cuz i think the destruction is so strong that uh i i hate to see it radiate out and touch other people and i just want it to be over with though i i don't see how it sustains itself but i don't see how it ends either and uh, so i'm sort of just left agape there's also something the one thing i do blame voters for is You know, when you're a kid, you think your parents are perfect and then you become an adolescent and you discover they've got a flaw, so you decide they're completely terrible. And I do think a lot of people have gone through that transition about American institutions. And because they don't want to think they're perfect, they've decided they're completely rotten. And so they're extremely negative about all politicians, all governments, frankly, all media. Uh, And it's just not the case. Uh, The people I know in government are mostly in it for the right reasons. They're usually good people stuck in a rotten system. Uh, but it, that cynicism, that everything's rotten, they're all rotten, they're all corrupt, is what tolerates dishonesty because you think, oh, what's, he's just another one of them. And that's actually not true. He's, he's not another one of them compared to all the other people I cover.
0: Yeah. And that extends to the media as well. I mean, this is the same attitude that imagines that Infowars is the same as the New York Times because both commit errors of fact yeah it's the leveling of all of all values and all truth claims there so anyway david we have to resist it and you've been resisting it impeccably in your column for the new york times so please keep it up
1: thank you i have no choice i need the I need the job
0: i know you got to get to another interview thanks again for your time and uh, i look forward to seeing you in person whenever that occasion arises
1: hope that happens soon it's a great pleasure talking with you thank you